Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. We are excited to share our guest with you today. This episode is not appropriate for children, so please make sure to only listen when children are not present. Today, Dan Moore will interview our lovely guest, Edie Allen, in the first part of her two-part episode. This interview is a raw, emotional, and impactful story of being an abuse survivor. Please be aware that this content is heavy. Next week's episode will be a deeper dive into her powerful healing process. Edie is an empowerment and transformational coach, as well as a brave storyteller. Edie has a stunning story of self-recreation, which you will hear from her yourself on this episode. With a heart devoted to helping others heal, Edie created a boutique healing practice in 1997 to assist people in a process she calls Shed, Shift, and Shine. Drawing from an expansive 30-year career in mental health, personal development, and wellness, as well as her own transformational experiences, Edie is a sought-after life coach, trainer, and educator, having spoken for Lululemon on empowerment, as well as numerous health and business organizations. She recently joined with Hollywood's Elite and Rock Royalty to share her story on stage at Steven Tyler's second annual Grammy Viewing Party Gala for Janie's Fund in Los Angeles, California, helping to raise more than $2.8 million for girls who've suffered from abuse and neglect. A professional speaker with our very own Southwestern Speakers, Edie is an expert in personal development, empowerment, transformation, mindfulness, and resilience. Enjoy this episode. I know you will. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore, and today's very special episode is blessed and graced by having Edie Allen as our guest. We're grateful to have you with us, Edie. Can you just please start by by sharing your story? Um, Sure. Um, Well, first, I'd like to say thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor and a a true blessing for me to connect with you and to I'm just truly honored to be a part of your show and what you're doing for the world and bringing light and love and insights and and um, tools and all things that can make us all better. And uh, and make us live more joyous lives. And so my story um, is one that didn't start out so joyous. Uh, when I was a little girl, I was, I was really good at keeping secrets. And I kept secrets that were necessary to keep. I kept the secret that my mom was really depressed and she slept a lot and, uh, and she beat us when we were little. Um, she just was really angry and I had to keep that a secret. And I also had to keep a secret that my mom's boyfriend, um, would 
come into my room and be staring at me uh, as a little kid and, um, and then develop this habit of, uh, of making me do things that no little girl should ever have to do. And so I had to keep these secrets because I wanted to protect my family and also because Bill threatened to, to take us off the planet in, in essence, if I did tell. And also, it was really important to me for the world to see me differently. I wanted the world to see me as someone who um, was happy and, and loved life because that's who I am on the inside. I am somebody who loves life and, and uh, have a lot of vibrancy for life. But I was also terribly afraid of what would happen to my family, what would happen to us. Um, when I was in about, I want to say, I think I was in eighth grade. I was sitting in class and I loved school. School was very important to me. I, I loved the attention that I got from my teachers when I made good grades and, um, and that made me feel really good about myself. And so school was, was very valuable to me. And I loved, um, I love studying, but this one particular day I had this big test and my teacher was passing the test and my best friend was in front of me and she passes the test back to me. And I think she could see the look on my face because I couldn't study the night before because Bill had, his routine was uh, every morning before school, he would molest me. And every afternoon, he would uh, chase me around the house and send my brothers outside to play. And, um, you know, he would hurt me. And so uh, this, this day came when my friend looked at my face and she could tell that something had happened. And just out of the blue, she said, has Bill been messing with you? And oh my gosh, it was just like this relief, like someone saw it and she grabs my hand and she takes me to the guidance counselor's office and she like knocks on the door and says, here, Edie, tell her. So I sat down and I talked to the guidance counselor about everything that happened. I told her everything that had been going on. It was such a relief. And, you know, I, I, I just was so happy to have gotten this off my chest. Um, so I went home that day and when Bill came for me, I, I just, I was like, I told, you know, people know. And so he rushes over and he grabs me and he throws me down and he pulls his fist back to hit me. And I just looked him right in the eye and I said, you go ahead and hit me. I would rather die than have you hit me again. So hit me hard enough to kill me or I would rather die than have you touch me again. So just go ahead and hit me. And uh, he stopped. He, he pulled away from me because, you know, I guess he could tell that I meant what I said. I, I did tell. And I had this new superpower. My secret was out. Yeah. And it just gave me a lot of confidence. And he left me alone for a while. Things between him and my mother got a little bit better. So my mother got a little better. But shortly after that, we went on a trip uh, across the country, just Bill, my brothers and myself. 
and uh, Bill attacked me on that trip and um, got me pregnant. How old were you? 14. Okay. Yeah, I was 14 years old. And the guidance counselor that I had told, when I asked her what was going to be happening, she told me that we would likely be going into foster care. And this is, we're talking in the 80s. Like, uh, so at that time, I had no idea about foster care other than what my mother had experienced. And my mother was depressed and angry and violent and, and was very sweet to other people, which was scary to me because I didn't know who she really was. She was definitely taking everything out on us, on the children and on, on uh, our family but she presented to the world as if everything was fine. So when the, the guidance counselor let us know that we'd be going into foster care, I was terrified because my mother grew up in foster care and I did not want to be like her. So um, I had to deny what I had said to her. I, I acted as, I told the guidance counselor, you can pretend like, all of, like nothing happened. I will deny everything I've just told you because um, she also let me know that in foster care at that time, uh, that it's not likely that the siblings stay together. Mm. And from the time that I was about seven years old, I was responsible for my brothers. I, I helped, I was raising them basically. Mm-hmm. I And shielding them probably. And shielding them. And um, when they when it was time for them to go to school, I was helping them with their homework. I was getting them up every morning. I was getting them on the bus and uh, I was cooking for our family. So in essence, my mother just kind of checked out of the wife role and 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 I just assumed it unwillingly. <laughs> so um, that was hard. And about. Uh, obviously being pregnant a couple of months in, I was having problems and Bill denied being able to get me pregnant. So his denial of me being able to get pregnant was very confusing for me. I didn't know what was really happening. I was still such young. I was 15 at my, I turned um, uh, 15 in November, just a few, uh, the trip was in July. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I was scared and he kept denying that anything could happen. And he, he would say pretty awful things to me about um, my character, you know, that I was loose. I was loose or I was um, the word whore was used quite a bit, which was horrifying to me because it's not at all who I was. And uh, so I was very confused. And finally com- came the time when he had to tell my mother. There was no denying. He had to tell her. He told her. My mother beat me, tried to kill me. It was an awful situation. And then my mother decided that she was going to raise the child as her own and that she and Bill were going to get married and that they were going to adopt BJ and um, that I would have no say so in it. So that's what they did. And uh, uh, when I, about a year later, the beatings started again. My mother was very angry, obviously, about everything. And 
Uh, I ran away from home after one particularly bad event of abuse and just ran out the door and saw it as freedom. And I um, went to live with some youth leaders of our church. Mm -hmm. I played softball for my church and the youth leader was my softball coach. And he and his wife were very fond of me and they knew that I was struggling at home. They didn't know details. No one knew any details. They knew I'd had a baby, but my mother had made it. She had told a lie that I had gone on this trip uh, and during the summer and that, that I was with someone and that I got pregnant. Hmm. So no one knew what to believe. And so when I went to live with the, my foster parents, um, right as I was starting to get comfortable in this new environment, their 30-year-old son was a police officer and he and his wife had separated. So he had moved back in. And one night he got in bed and also tried to molest him. Gosh. And he was a police officer in our town. So I had to keep that a secret. So I just developed all of these secrets. And uh, so it was very hard to stay hopeful. Mm-hmm. It was very hard to, to keep faith in humanity and in myself. And um, I was someone, though, who had, had really done a lot of praying and soul searching. And I had a strong connection to my higher power, to faith, my, you know, what I call God was there all along the way, letting me know that I was going to be okay. Just these little miraculous events and conversations that I was having. So I just kept turning to that and, and uh, knowing that I was going to be okay. After that experience, I gave up hope on myself. Mm-hmm. And um, by this time I was in college, my freshman year in college, I was doing incredibly well. I was an overachiever for sure. I was hiding from my problems, <laughs> but uh, it all seemed to be working for me. I was on the dean's list. I was, uh, I was a cheerleader, which had been a dream come true for me. Uh, I was a literary magazine editor. I worked for my English professor as his assistant. I worked with a dean of psychology as his assistant. And I was on the awards committee. I just was shining and I was making excellent grades. And then when this happened, when I went home from college and this happened with their son, I just lost all faith in myself and I gave up and I started, um, I started drinking and I started just trying to numb myself, which was pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I often say the things that happened to me in my childhood were, were awful, but the things that I did to myself from that space, that they were pretty horrific as well. Mm-hmm. So one day I heard in 1989, I heard this song, Janie's Got a Gun, and it was Aerosmith. And Aerosmith had been a big part of my 
survival space because I love the song Dream On. I loved music. Music was a way for me to escape. It was a way for me to just kind of go to someplace else and live out these stories that other people were telling or, you know, and it was just, it was, it was a part of the healing process for me, just being, immersing myself in, in music. And I was writing songs and writing stories and writing and just being very creative. And so when I heard this song, Janie's Got a Gun, I knew instantly what that song was about instantly. It was, I knew that that song was about a girl who'd been through what I had been through. And I knew that that girl had taken justice into her own hands. And I knew that there was a day that I was going to do the same thing in terms, but I wanted to do it in a more positive way. I wanted to hold my perpetrator accountable. So I did. Hmm. And I wanted to do it when the child that I gave birth to was 18. And so when he turned 18, I held Bill accountable. And what's incredible about this story and how it ties into my faith is at that time, I was, I had become a massage therapist. I had gone from working with children who'd been through what I'd been through as a children's counselor uh, to psychiatric nursing. Nursing wasn't a good fit for me. So I transitioned into Uh, becoming a massage therapist and started doing energy practitioning kind of work. And that was really helping me heal. And there was a woman named Nancy Love. Her real name is Nancy Love, who was helping me at that time and encouraging me and, and nurturing me. And she would say things like, Edie, your story is going to bless so many people one day. You will be sharing the story and just keep surrounding yourself in light and love as you go through this process of holding Bill accountable. Just be in light and love. Surround yourself with light and love. And, and make it white light because white light is healing. White light is pure and innocent. And you deserve to have your innocence back. So. The day came for me to make the phone call. I called the detective's office at the town where this took place. And Detective Richard White answered the phone. (laughs) White light. (laughs) (laughs) And he had to come to my house and interview me. And he did. And when he came, the person that he brought, his partner's name was Angel. (laughs) And Nancy had told told me so many times, your angels are surrounding you. You're protected. Your angels are surrounding you. When it came time to put the paperwork in and file this case with the solicitor's office, the solicitor's name was Mary Christina Theos. (laughs) That's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. So I've got Nancy Love, White Light, Angels, Mary, Christ, and God all in my in my corner. So I felt loved and supported. The day I actually um, got the phone call that Bill turned himself in and he was arrested, I sat down and I just poured my feelings into this poem called The Gates of Freedom. It just came out of me. And it was as if my soul was expressing this feeling of freedom. And And I was writing a lot at that time. And there was a time period before the sentencing. And my mother, she and Bill had divorced. Bill had been seeing someone else. It was someone that he had been in love with since he was a child. 
that I happen to look just like. My goodness. Right. So he and my, my, my mother found them together. So they divorced, but for whatever reason, my mother posted the bail for Bill to get out of jail before the sentencing. They had been divorced for almost four years. Hmm. So I wasn't expecting to walk into the courtroom for the sentencing and to see my whole family, my mother, the child who was 18, my brother, my sister-in-law, all standing next to my perpetrator. And I literally viscerally felt like a punch in my gut. Mm -hmm. I felt literally viscerally doubled over from the betrayal. So the judge says, and I had been told that this was a judge who'd been brought in, who had been retired, but he was lenient on sex offenders. So he was brought in to hear my case. How is that even a thing? Mm. So when we, he says, why are we doing this? This happened almost 20 years ago. Why are we doing this? And I said, your honor, it's because it took me 20 years to get well enough to be able to talk about this. It took me 20 years to be able to stand here in front of you and to say, this happened to me. And all of these people have been blaming me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I read a letter that I had written the court of 33 things, because I was 33 years old at the time, of things that I felt that had been taken from me. So the judge gave him a sentence that he also of 36 years if he did if he broke he had 1 year of probation 5 years of uh, let's see 1 year of mand- mandatory counseling 1 year of house arrest and 5 years of probation so if he broke those things he would be sentenced to jail and i knew that he was not going to be okay with that sentence. Mm -hmm. And sadly, two weeks after I had begged the the detectives, I had told everyone, you cannot send this man home. He has guns in the home. It's not a safe environment. And two weeks later, he shot and killed his girlfriend and himself. Oh God. Of course, my family blamed me, Mm -hmm. but I didn't, I didn't do that. I was a small child and I did my part in terms of trying to protect society and even my part in trying to get him help Mm -hmm. because sick people do sick things. And shortly after I was interviewed by a newspaper reporter, a very insensitive newspaper reporter who said, well, did you think? that he was capable of of killing someone? Did you think that by doing this, that he was going to do that, that he was capable of killing someone? And my response to that is, if someone would have sex with a child, what wouldn't he do? What aren't they capable of, yeah. What aren't they capable of? Anyone, he, she, what aren't they capable of if if, if that is where they're going, then, then truly they are not well. They're not well. And that's why I think it's so important for us to be conscious in the world Mm -hmm. because conscious people don't hurt others and they don't hurt themselves. So after that, I, 
I spent many years, again, not sharing that story because I didn't want to hurt anyone else. Hmm. My neighborhood even blamed me for, uh, for the death of the woman. And she was a mother. She had come to break it up, break it off with, with Bill. And uh, she didn't get a chance to do that and go back to her family. So for years, I did not want to hurt anyone else with my story. And I didn't want to, I was still trying to protect my family. But that little, that little song and, and Steven Tyler, I heard that Steven started an organization uh, called Janie's Fund to help girls who've been abused and neglected. And I knew that there was a calling in me to do something more powerful. So I went to study with this guy named Bo Eason to learn how to take my story and turn it into something beautiful and meaningful and helpful. And I studied with him and I met someone there who could help me craft out my story. And as amazing as it would be, again, a blessing, while I was there studying with him, I somehow became friends with Steven Tyler who heard my story. We spent three and a half hours talking about my story. Again, well, actually, it's more of a God wink. We spent three hours and 20 minutes to the minute talking about my story. 3.20 was the day BJ was born. Wow. So all of these beautiful God winks, I call them. Stephen calls them that too. And letting me know that this, this story is powerful and it's meaningful and it and it can help others if I can shine the light on the, the truth of it. And that that is, um, we can all do better about providing safe places for, for people and their secrets. And we can all do better of, of, of sharing our own secrets with people that are, are um, equipped to handle them so that we don't have to live with them and let them um, eat away at us. Like I often wonder if my mother had been able to talk to someone about her secrets, would she have been so angry and violent? Mm -hmm. If Bill had been able to talk to someone about his addictions, his sex addictions and his, his demons, would, would he have, would he have been able to heal? And so Stephen asked me to share my story at his, at his uh, Grammy viewing party, this gala to raise money and awareness for girls who've been through what I've been through. And it was an incredible honor. And 540 people were there. We raised $2.8 million. And I was able to share my story. And, and all uh, for the hopes of inspiring others to unburden themselves from their secrets mm -hmm. and as a society for us to um, to be there as best we can for others when they are sharing something lovely and personal and deep and um, and um, even troublesome if we're not equipped just do our best to help them with resources so that they can find the best place to share their secrets and it's also been very important for me in the last, I've been working on my healing process and working on empowering myself and teaching others how to empower themselves 
with healing tools that are, are very unique and very different from traditional therapy. My own personal experiences with traditional therapy did not go so well, and it works for, for some. I, I definitely don't mean to say that therapy, therapy in whatever form that you feel connected with is the right therapy for you. Hmm. It has to resonate with you and you will benefit. And for me, I, I loved um, transformational work, psychodrama, Jungian psychology, understanding dynamics, individual um, dynamics, family dynamics. And I just became an expert on healing and wellness and mental health. I'm I'm a mental health specialist. Uh, I'm a licensed certified professional life coach. And I have been a professional body worker for 22 years with mind, body, spiritual um, work with massage therapy and uh, all these different healing modalities. But all of that was so that I could heal and then I could shift and then I could be more conscious in the world. <laughs> so the thing that I love talking about is hope, you know, like all of those little nudges were ways for me to stay connected to hope. When I heard Janie's fund, or excuse me, Janie's got a gun, that gave me hope. That gave me hope that somebody with a big voice and big influence may care about people like me one day and may want to do things like for, for people like me. And, um, and he is. And so I, I'm grateful to be now on the executive board for Janie's fund and able to connect with the girls and help them heal and use their voices and their stories for more transformation on the planet so that we can bring not only awareness to the issues, but start getting creative about prevention. That's where I want to focus our, our, our energy and our intellect and the information and the research is how can we start preventing these kinds of things from happening? And I do think that it is about giving people platforms, safe platforms to unburden themselves for the things that are troubling them that end up becoming things that they act out on society. Mm-hmm. So that they don't feel compelled to either completely submerge and give up or play the hero on the outside as, as you did as a young girl, knowing that the tremendous pain inside was being masked to some extent by that. Well said. Wow. Yeah. Um, Edie, this is, is stunning. And your willingness to share this is such an encouragement. Thank please, you. Please join us. We'll have more next week. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.